All right, welcome to the Dialogue Box. I'm Gwen Frey, and today I'm joined with Mike Arkin. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's good to good to be here. Good to be uh, still doing this. And I'm really glad you you're here to join us. This is actually really intimidating. You've um, you've owned a company longer than I've been in the industry. You've been around for a really long time. It's it's not that impressive. Uh, it just means I'm more tired and <laughs> slightly more overweight than you. So a little more jaded. Just retired and older, yeah. uh, very, very jaded. I think I've been jaded for a long time though. So, but this industry will do that to you. Yeah. How quickly did you become jaded? Uh, no, it took a while. It, it you know, probably took about 10, 15 years. Oh yeah. All right. Let's go back then. What are, uh, where'd you get started? How did you get into where did I get started? Um, you know, actually, thank you for asking that. I love telling the story. Um, in, uh, in 1987, I was a college dropout, and uh, I was just kind of like looking for a job, and I ended up at this kind of crappy, you know, I'm not going to stay here long computer rental company. And uh, like, you know, I don't know, on my second week, I went to a claim to deliver a Mac, and I walked in, and the president of the company was a guy named Rob Holmes. He was on the phone with a friend of his. So, you know, he asked me to wait. And I just, I overheard him saying, hey, I can't decide if I want to buy a Mercedes SL or a BMW M6. And in my head, I'm thinking, I want to work somewhere where people make decisions like that. <laughs> and So you know, hold up, you joined the industry to get rich? Uh, you know, I was 18. Right. What did I know? What did I know? So, um, I, you know, I just, when he got off the phone, we, we did our business and I said, Hey, you know, like, you know, I'd love to work here. And, you know, this is, this is not the kind of, um, job interview technique that's easy to repeat. So, you know, this isn't necessarily advice. This is just a story, but, uh, that, you know, the, uh, the other founder of the company a guy named Greg Fishback came in, he started talking about games he'd worked on at Activision and, you know, I, I played them all. So we just got into this conversation about games and I just said, look, I want to work here. And he said, okay. <laughs> um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of crazy. I mean, I was 18. I didn't know anything. And they stuck me in a cube with a Nintendo. Did, were, there, uh, were there other games around back? Like, did, was this a career path you knew about when you got started? Or were you like, I didn't know people could do this? Well, I mean, you know, like I, when I was in high school, we, you know, like everybody played games. I had an Atari 800 and everyone in my homeroom class had an Atari 800, right? Like that was the, there was like the um, Commodore 64 homeroom and there was like the Apple II homeroom and ours was the Atari 800 homeroom. And so I played, I played all the, you know, I played everything. And so I knew games existed. Um, and, but, you know, I didn't realistically think I was going to just, walk into a game company and get a job. And, you know, like they, they would hand me a big box of games and say, play all of these games and tell us like, what's good. And I would just sit there like thinking in my head, how is this like happening? What the hell? So, wow. So you walked in, to, you were delivering a Mac and you got a job in QA basically back in the day, yeah, 1987. Well, I mean, it was like a five person company. So I was like, I was QA, I was development, I was, you know, I was like, I was kind of everything. I mean, you know, like um, the boss would send me to get his car washed. 
and uh, you know, it was like pick up dry cleaning. You know, it was like whatever. Um, it, like I said, it was such a it, you know, it was five. I was employee number seven. So, um, and and I worked there for about five years, and you know, I worked on got to be like fifty games or something crazy. Oh, okay. So you were there for five years. You well, hold up. You worked on 50 games in five years with seven people? Well, I, the company obviously grew. Like, you know, I, when I started, the company was, I don't know, like less than a year old. And they had explosive growth. There was money was like, you know, falling from the sky. And so, you know, by the time I left, a claim was probably like 300 people. Oh, wow. So, they went from five to 300 people in five years. I, yeah. I, I, mean, um, I mean, you can imagine back then, you you know, like an NES game would sell millions of units and, and, you know, it was all, it was a lot of profit. So the company was doing really, really well. And, um, they, you know, they were hiring like mad and development grew. It was, you know, started, like I said, just me, but it, it grew very rapidly, but a producer at a claim might have 10 games that they were responsible for at one time. So, um, you know, we had, we had very competent developers that were doing the work and, uh, you know, mostly we were just kind of overseeing and facilitating assets and, you know, helping marketing out. So it wasn't like when I say 10 games, it wasn't like I was slaving away, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many, uh, how, I don't even know where to begin because it feels so different. Like how, how many people were on a team back then uh, for a, an NES game? I mean, maybe like three. So it'd be like three people for like, how long was a, a game in development? Yeah, I mean, so keep in mind, like, um, the kind of work that Acclaim did was mostly like a movie or a comic license, um, you know, s cartoons. So usually it was very rapid development. Yeah, I would say maybe a year. Um, so you might have one or two engineers and then a couple of artists, maybe. You know, some of the teams might have been like five. Um, and then a lot of the games that we did were brought over from Japan. So they would basically have a, you know, sometimes it was a finished game. And and then, you know, my job would be, you know, translate the English, uh, correct or correct the English, I should say. And and then sometimes there was content you had to deal with. Um, actually, I'll give a, a funny example. I worked on the Rambo game. Yeah. And I I was playing the finished game right before we picked it up. It was It was already shipped in Japan. And so we we um, translated the text, or they translated the text into English, and then we had this really really bad English. So then we went through and made corrections. But I was I was literally taking faxes and writing on them, and then faxing them back to them, right? Because they there was no email, so they couldn't email me the file. Wait, so it was all done with you know like literally me with a pencil drawing on the you know, on the paper. Uh, and it was a very text heavy game. So it was probably like, I don't know, 50 pages of dialogue. And so the, so the game gets finished and we ship it. And like two weeks into it, someone calls. And I'm also, I also answer the phones, talk to people who call with questions. And he starts telling me this thing, like at the end of the game, Rambo turns into a frog. And what does this mean? And I, I'm, I'm like, you know, I, th I thought it was a joke. Like, what, what, like, what are you talking about? So we fax the developer and say, hey, you know, at the end of the game, does 
does Rambo turn into a frog? Like, that seems inappropriate. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yes, yes, yes. And, um, you know, that represents the badness of his soul. And, you know, if he shows made the wrong choices in the game and we're just like, uh, yeah, can you please take that out quickly? Um, and, uh, you know, so I think somewhere if you Google, you can actually find a video of Rambo turning into a frog uh, on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, so for a lot of development, you know, back then it, it was Japanese in the beginning and then slowly it switched over and then a lot of the games were developed uh, in the UK or or like Mortal Kombat was, was uh, in Utah. Wow. This is, I mean, you just blew my mind with the concept that there was no email and you were making games. <laughs> uh, yeah, not only was there no email, but we didn't have, you know, FTP or any way to send a file. So when we we send a fax to the developer and say make these changes, and we'd have to wait for them to FedEx a, a, a physical ROM to us, and then we put in a board and plug it into the you know to the Nintendo to play it, and then if there was still if there was something wrong, we'd have to wait. You know, it was like a five day turnaround to get a new build. Wow, I don't even know what to say. That's yeah. insane. Like I uh, I think for. I had to send a physical copy to um, Australia for ratings back like five years ago, and I debated just not doing it. I'm like, look, you are so far behind the times. If I have to mail you something in the mail, like who gets mail anymore? I can't imagine. I, like, it's actually hard for me to even imagine. You yeah. Um, in fact, uh, I haven't done an ESRB rating in a long time because I haven't done like a you know physical product in years. But when we would do uh, ESRB rating, you had to make a videotape. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, actually, you know what I'm thinking about even before that, for Nintendo, when you would submit a game, there were so many content issues, like, and, and honestly, I was, you know, I worked on a bunch of games that had a bunch of content issues, like the uh, arcade game NARC, which was all basically every imaginable drug and vice in one game. And so Nintendo had this policy, you had to make a videotape of the entire game and send it in with your submission. And so, and then the rule was you couldn't edit the tape because they did, they wanted to make sure you were showing the whole game and you didn't cut out the juicy parts. Um, and so, yeah, we had to make a physical videotape and then mail it to them. Did you have to like do it in one shot? I mean, I guess games back then you could play through in one day. It yeah, you had quite... to do it in one shot. So, so for every game, we knew which was the which was the tester sorry we had a little pause there um for every game you had to know which was the tester that was really good at that game and then that guy would like be on the, the you know on the hot seat to make that tape and sometimes like halfway through the tape you know he would die or game over and then you'd have to start over and do the whole thing again wow i uh that's insane that's like, I don't even know where to begin. So you you spent five years there, and that still takes you to long before I was in the industry. Uh, yeah, I think I left in like 92 or something like that. 92. Okay, where did what happened next? Uh, what happened was, um, you know, I was, uh, it was, I was kind of a kind of spoiled kid and didn't really, you know, have a lot of great, kind of business skills. And so they told me to, you know, take off. And, um, 
I just had been talking to a friend of mine who had a friend at Sony and I, and I had met them and we'd kind of gotten along and then I called up and said, Hey, I'm, you know, looking for a job. And they said, Oh, come out to LA, come work at Sony. Wait, so, so where were you before LA? Like, uh, well, claim was New York, New York. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I, I lived in uh, Oyster Bay, Long Island, nice. home of the Oyster Fest. So how old were you when you crossed the country to go from New York to LA? Uh, I guess I was like 23. Yeah. I mean, that seems so normal because like I'm a millennial and we do that all the time, but that was way rarer back then just picking up and like crossing the country. I mean, and I think the, the cool thing about it was if you're going to move across the country, the right way to do it is to have a giant multinational corporation hire you and move you. Just physically. So yeah. They, they showed up at my house with a truck they packed my house, loaded everything up, and then they, somebody got into my RX-7 and drove it up the ramp into the truck behind my couch. And, you know, my stuff magically appeared in, in L.A. two weeks later. And then you were working uh, at Sony. So you went from working for a company that was kind of working for Nintendo, it sounds like. And now you're working on, at this point, it sounds like that would be the PS1 or the PS2. That was before the launch of the PS1. So, so I was actually really excited that I was going to work for this new, you know, first party to work on PlayStation 1. And then the funny thing is I got there and they assigned me a bunch of Sega CD games. And, um, you know, before the launch of, of PlayStation, Sony ImageSoft, which was the, the game team, was doing cross-platform, you know, Sega and Nintendo games. And they kept doing that because that was like what they knew how to do. And so I got these like, you know, crappy movie license uh, Sega CD games. And I was like, hey, um, what about that PlayStation thing? And they were like, yeah, yeah, later, later. Um, and uh, I, yeah, actually, ironically, never worked on a, a PlayStation 1 game when I was at Sony. Huh. Okay. So, so you, you were mostly managing like, uh, you were kind of like a product lead uh, what would you say you, you did at Sony? Well, we, well, we call it external producer, right? External so producer. I was a you know producer and I had like, you know, four games that I worked on with different teams. Actually, interestingly enough, the two of the games I worked on were with um, Cygnosis, which had been, you know, brought into the Sony family. And they were pretty, you know, pretty well-respected kind of hot team at the time. They had made a, a bunch of like really innovative games and, uh, they were in uh, Liverpool, which I had heard of, you know, like, of course, everyone knows Liverpool is the birthplace of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And so I, th I went out there for the first time. I thought it was going to be this like beautiful, exciting place. Um, and it's, it's, it's not that, it's not that beautiful. I, sh I, I hope there's no one watching this from Liverpool. <laughs> it's decidedly okay. Okay. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was, it was great. And, and, uh, you know, they had great food and, and all that. But, uh, but it, yeah, I mean, it was just, I don't know. I had this weird idea in my head that like the Beatles were going to be hanging out on the corner playing music or something, you know, uh, um, apparently they were disbanded by that time. So um, I feel like if you're from New York and then LA, you've probably, I don't like, if you've been to New York city, you've seen, in my opinion, one of the, you've seen some of the most extreme beauty, like New York is insane. LA is beautiful in a different, weird kind of a way, uh, arguably. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, those are like two the two of the greatest cities in the world. You know, yeah. 
and I, when I was at Acclaim, I spent a lot of time in London and um, also, you know, a, an incredibly beautiful, I would say even better city than New York, different ways. Different, yeah. But, and I didn't mean to disparage Liverpool, but um, so I worked on some really, you know, interesting games with that Psygnosis team, but uh, but it wasn't it wasn't PlayStation. So I kind of got a little I got a little jaded, and they kept changing management. And um, Kelly Flock joined. And Kelly Kelly's a legend. He's uh, he's a really uh, a guy with an impressive career, um, and he really kind of in a lot of ways turned that place around right after I left, which was very ironic. And Kelly decided to move uh, the, that division to Northern California, to San Francisco. That's They renamed it 989 when they did that because they moved into the building that was 989-something Avenue. And uh, I said, no, I, you know, I want to stay in L.A., so I'm, you know, I'm going to get out of here. Um, and at the time, a really good friend of mine who was still at Acclaim had started to interview and he was interviewing at Activision and Fox. And he said, oh, wherever I land, like, you know, come work with me. And I wanted to work at Fox because that sounded really cool. So I kept telling him, oh, Activision, yeah, I'm not really sure about that place. I think you should go to Fox because, um, of course, that's that's where I wanted to go. So it, he, t- he took the job at Fox. And then, you know, like a week after he got there, they said, yeah, you know, come come here, work on on stuff here. So, um, and that was actually, you know, I was sorry to leave Sony, but uh, Fox was a really exciting move and it was really neat to work at a, at a movie studio. Okay. So now, so you would, before you're making a lot of games that were based on other people's IPs, you were, you were managing and producing these games made on, uh, based on other people's IPs. And now you're there, you're with the creatives because you're at Fox doing what, what did you do at Fox as a producer? Yeah, and the, the funny thing is that I had worked on all the Simpsons games at Acclaim. And so I went to Fox thinking, oh, this is great. I'll work on all the Simpsons games. And then the first project I started working on was, was Die Hard Trilogy, and, which, was, which was great. I love Die Hard, and the game was really fantastic. And I ended up passing all the Simpsons stuff to another producer. And so I actually ended up not working on anything Simpsons. Uh, but mostly, I worked on Die Hard. I worked on um, Independence Day, which was uh, which was a good game, and Alien, the original Alien versus Predator. Yeah, we're finally. This is really embarrassing because we're finally catching up to the games that I remember from my youth now. Like, okay. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, we're there. All right, the Simpsons games. Yeah, I, I remember these. Yes. Wow, this is insane. Okay, so you were there for those, and you were your job was mostly producing at this point. Were you like? Can yeah, you was, explain what, yeah, was, what it was to be a producer back then uh, on those games? Like, well, what, and, what was and your day to day? Just to make like a, a you know small distinction, right? Like, um, the really people don't understand there really are two kinds of producers in the industry, mm-hmm. and so you know, Acclaim, Sony, Fox. I was an external producer. So an external producer is three jobs. One is oversight over the developer, right? Making sure they actually deliver something that is good. And then a second job is supporting the developer. So developer needs assets or they need, you know, like for example, during Die Hard, they would say, okay, we need reference photos for Die Hard 1. And I was like, oh, cool. Uh, I'm sitting in the building. And I just picked up a camera and just started taking pictures of, of, you know, the building. I walked around and took pictures of like elevators and things. Um, and the third job is, you know, supporting 
the internal team. So, which means, you know, sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, take screenshots, helping get the manual developed. Back then we had manuals. Yeah. Uh, Did you do, were you in charge, like producers today, when I think of an external producer, a lot of it's managing QA. Um, A lot of times they're kind of the bad guy. If you're a developer, they're kind of the ones that are telling you that you have to change things because your game won't sell very well, or you have to, uh, uh, they're the ones telling you that you haven't met your milestone or you have met your milestone. Like they're, they're kind of like the law in a way. Yeah. Is that how you kind of see it or? Yeah, totally. 100%. And actually to put it into a little bit of perspective, like you're someone who you develop your game. Mm -hmm. And so your publisher is not going to force you to make changes you don't want to make, or they might try. But at that point in my life, you know, again, acclaim Sony Fox, those were all work for hire projects where it was our IP or it was our idea. And so the developers really were kind of in a way like subservient to us. Yeah. So that what you just described was totally my job was, you know, if the developer delivered something I didn't like, I would say, let's do this a different way. And well, you're uh, paying for it. Like, that's the difference. If you want to, yeah, like the, the risk of it's great that I don't have to, sorry, deal with somebody telling me what to do, but I pay for that in that I have to pay for it, right? And if you're, the way I think of it is if if you're a publisher and you're completely paying for a project for a developer to do, uh, they, of course they work for you. That's like the point, right? It kind of makes sense. It's work for hire. Um, Yeah, totally. And I think I probably played that card a few too many times. I mean, there's, there's times where I absolutely had to play that card and um, because it was, you know, our movie uh, or, you know, or our, our property. And people but, are like, I understand people getting very um, draconian about their IP. A lot of places have like Disney is famous for being very difficult to work with. Uh, if you make a game for Disney, there's th- you'll, you'll pitch a game and then they'll be like, oh, you're making a Disney princess game. The player character can't die. We can't have a princess die. You're like, but it's a game and we pitched it. Like, yeah, but but princesses don't die. Can she get sick? No. Can she faint? Maybe. Like, and it's, on the one hand, if, as a game developer, you're like, this is fucking awful. What are we doing? On the other hand, like, you know, there there's people yeah. like there's an established group of people that are keeping the Disney princesses a very specific thing across all media and you they are paying you to make this game and you kind of have to it's For not sure. necessarily a fun job but you got to like respect that you know and the thing is a thing that a lot of people don't understand is the brand itself is so much bigger than the Disney princess PlayStation 2 game and so you know one princess is worth billions of dollars to Disney and they would rather not do the game than have anything that could that could damage the brand. And you know, Barbie is the same way. You know, I had had friends that worked on Barbie games, and you know, Barbie is not allowed to bend over. Um, you know, there's all these because it's funny. I mean, I'm like trying not to laugh, but uh, but like even the thought that Barbie could be physically in a position where like if the two characters came together and someone took a screenshot and it looked inappropriate and that that Disney is just not interested in having that happen. I've heard so, so many stories with this kind of stuff. Like I, I remember uh, on The Sims, the one laptop that can't break is the Intel laptop. 
or like uh, everything in the Sims can break except for that. Or I, don't I believe know. that if Intel, you know, did Intel some kind paid. of deal, right? I'm trying to think if we ever, like on Die Hard, there was nothing like that. Like Die Hard, there's no producer that owns Die Hard. So we could basically do anything we wanted. Um, the only funny thing is uh, one time there was a lawyer for our group. She was like a really powerful lawyer. And she walked by my office and she said, oh, I heard you're doing voice recording, um, you know, tomorrow. And I said, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we've got this great cast. We've got a guy that sounds just like Bruce Willis. And she was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, you know, Bruce has a, like most actors, he has a clause in his contract that you can't do soundalikes. And she's like, you got to make sure it doesn't sound like Bruce Willis. And that was probably the only kind of constraint that the brand ever brought to us. So I called up, um, there's a, Lonnie Minnelli, he's a famous voice director and does like a lot of games. And I said, look, Lonnie, you can't, let this guy sound like Bruce Willis. She's like, sure, no problem, no problem. And it comes back, you know, a couple of days later. And, um, you know, so Lonnie was so good that I didn't even go to the recording. I just gave her the script. And it was all just like kind of dialogue that the characters shout, like when they're being chased and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And of course, it sounds just like him, right? It's like a perfect Bruce Willis. And uh, I'm just, you know, so we just stuck it in and we never, you know, we're like, don't anybody let Jamie play this game because we'll all get in trouble. And the people still like 10 years later would come up to me and go, well, how did you get Bruce Willis in that game? And I was like, uh, yeah, it's not Bruce Willis. doesn't like, sound like him. We just don't talk about it. <laughs> we just. And then 25 years later, um, someone called me like, Hey, can you help this person out with this project? And it was this woman who had an idea for a game about women and, and their careers and I went to her house to meet her, and her husband was the actor from Die Hard, who was the reporter, who's kind of like the jerk re- reporter that I think Bruce Willis punches yeah. him at the end or something. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. Um, it was just very funny. Die I Hard. watched that movie every year for Christmas. <laughs> you should. It's the greatest Christmas movie ever. Of course, of all time, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. That's funny. That's such a good story. The Die Hard and Bad Santa. Bet. What about? Oh, you watch that one every year for Christmas? But those are the two best Christmas movies. Got it. All right. Yeah. I I have never watched Bad Santa. I must catch up on that. Oh. I'm trying to think. I don't. The only time I worked on an IP that was somebody else's was Marvel Heroes. Um, and uh, working with Marvel, I think we were lucky. I, I mean, it was a pain in the ass working with somebody else's IP. There was every time we made any character model, we had to go send it to Marvel, and they had to approve it and so forth. And they um they definitely had certain skins that they wanted in the game and other things but it was kind of in a way it was kind of cool because we got um brian michael bendis is like this famous writer and his whole thing was making sure his whole job is to make sure all the comics and all the movies and all the games and everything is rowing in one direction right and he came and like we had to pay him but he came and wrote like the because we had that guy writing the script for our game like it was untouchable because uh, it was like the top of the chain had already approved it because the top of the chain was the one that wrote it. And so we were kind of like safe as far as the story goes. They Marvel cares about their story. That's uh... Yeah, I, I worked on a uh, Spider-Man uh, NES game. No, no, sorry, uh, Game Boy. And um, Marvel came back and said Spider-Man's not red enough. 
All right. Did you make so him writer? First of all, I gotta, um, I gotta help the punchline along. This is the original Game Boy that was only black and white. <laughs> oh, so. right. Well, <laughs> what a. That's one of my like four uh, crazy licensor stories. You only get <laughs> one one per interview. Okay, that one's that one's difficult. That's a difficult challenge. How did you uh, how did you uh, facilitate you know, making it redder? We had to explain it to them. I think we had to say, look, there's there's black, there's white, there's light gray and dark gray, and you know we were using light gray, and that's kind of all you get. Fair enough, man. That's crazy. Yeah. God, so was that it? Were you at Fox when you were working at Spider-Man? Because I know Fox. Oh, no, that was actually at a claim. At a claim, we did okay. a lot of Spider-Man and X-Men, and this is like before the movies. Um, but you know, uh, I think we did um, a Wolverine game, mm -hmm. so it was, it was great stuff to work on. And, and again, we had like a, a bunch of really great developers that we worked with. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay, so well, Fox, you were. Fox really only did three games, really. I mean, you know, I helped out on the Simpsons stuff a little bit, and we did this um, this thing called Simpsons Cartoon Studio, which was like a million frames of animation, and you could had every Simpsons character, and you could basically make little cartoons. Um, I, I didn't actually work on that, but it was it was an awesome app, and you like sadly. I don't think you can get it or play it like it's director and it runs on windows three and um, but it was really fun. And that, so that was when you were talking about like the Disney princesses yeah. and it just reminded me of Simpsons cartoon studio because we had one guy in the office who could take every animation. Like he was somehow able to put these things together into like the most inappropriate cartoons ever. Um, and I'm like, I'm sad that it doesn't exist anymore. Like I had a floppy somewhere that had the, the save files, but it was exactly what Disney doesn't want you to do with their princesses. He was able to do with, with the Simpsons. Interesting. So did you, uh, you're not going to give me any other stories where you got in trouble using people's IP. Um, that seems fair. My, my other favorite was uh, Terminator two. Yeah. There's, um, there's a very classic shot of Linda Hamilton where she's, She's got her hair in a ponytail. She's wearing a wife beater and she's got the, you know, M16 in her hand. And it's a, it's a classic picture. You, you could Google and find that picture really easily. And we use that picture for uh, one of the, you know, one of the story screens. And again, this is Game Boy. So, you know, it was digitized down to like, you know, 100 by 100 or something like that. And Jim Cameron uh, saw it and they we, they launched into this um, you know critical tirade about how we made Linda Hamilton look like a whore, what? and you know I, I don't remember if her boobs were too big or if they were too if the shirt was too revealing or something, and we we had to go in and edit her you know her boobs to make them less whorish, and we went back and forth I think five times. Um, I, I don't know if they were dating at the time that may have had something to do with it, but, um, but you know, the, I mean, the funny thing was we just had digitized this stock photo. That was one of the stock photos that was used everywhere. And, yeah. you know, but, but the, literally I had this fax from, you know, Jim Cameron's office that said in this picture, she looks like a whore. 
Oh my god. I was about to say, well, don't let him Google it, and then he'll find out it's everywhere. But then I re- then you said the word fax, and I realized we are still pre-internet. Yeah, there was Holy no Google. Shit. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, we had um I'm trying to think of a situation like that. We definitely had a thing at Marvel. A Marvel, everybody wears spandex, and there was a conversation about like the package size of the of the various superheroes relative to each other internally. We had a lot of jokes about things like that. Uh and that was definitely something there you have conversations with people who own the IPs with with where like you kind of talk around it and figure out what you're supposed to do because it's you can't really ask directly. Oh God. The industry's so I, weird. I, I've luckily never had package conversations with anyone. Thank thank God. Well, I mean they all wear spandex. Both Black Panther and Captain America. Like everybody wears spandex in that thing. Uh anyway, we should move off of that. So where <laughs> I don't even know where to go from here. Uh, you, I went to Activision. Um, oh, I th- but you didn't want to go to Activision. Why did you thought well, Activision was, was yeah, super I, uncool? I that. that was that was ironic. They had been calling me. I think it was after Die Hard shipped. You know, they, they. I think literally, I think someone went through the credits and they just cold called me and said, "Can you come over and talk to us?" And actually, I think I had been at Fox for about three years, and I was a little disillusioned by the lack of leadership. Um, they had had kind of a, a home video guy running the game group and they their marketing was really poor and the distribution was was not great. So Die Hard, as an example, sold two and a half million units in Europe and like 150,000 in the US. And Europe was EA. So Wait, I saw- uh, explain this to me. So Fox... So when you were at Fox, your job was to get another a, a, a bunch of game developers to make the game, and then you, at Fox, somebody you knew there would distribute it in America, but somebody EA distributed it in Europe. Yeah, I mean, fairly simple. Like you know, the the leadership of the interactive group, which was a uh, you know, we were like a subsidiary of the of the entertainment, the the movie studio, basically. Okay. Um, they they created they had a sales team and they had a marketing team. And so they were using their home video sales team to sell the products because the theory was, you know, home videos go to stores that also carry games. Uh-huh. And so they, you know, that was their business. But for Europe, since they didn't have an organization in Europe, we just did a, you know, publishing deal with EA for EA to distribute the products in the rest of the world. I guess it was it was Europe and, and Asia. Because um, I remember Die Hard, we, we did actually... Um, uh, localized into Japanese. I have a, I have a copy of that somewhere. Yeah. Um, oh, that's awkward. And, so you but, had a publisher it, publishing it overseas, and they did better than you. Yeah, and and honestly, I think that's not uncommon. Um, I mean, and and honestly, you know, again, like it was, it was EA, and EA was this you know pretty big established publisher. So they they knew how to ship games. They were you know they were they were very good at that. And, but when I saw that, I felt like, you know, this, I don't want to make games that aren't going to sell well. Mm-hmm. And well, I, I mean, clearly at a claim, I'd made some games that were kind of stinkers, but, you know, Die Hard was a 95%, you know, Metacritic game. And if that game was not going to sell well in the US, that just, that didn't make me feel good. Did, did Metacritic and, exist before the internet? No, well, there was internet at that time, so oh, okay. you know, hold on there. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, you said there fax. Was... The fact that you're still using faxes is still blowing my mind. 
I'm like imagining I, the corrugated paper and shit. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so at, at Fox, we had email even. Okay. Um, All right. But it was one of those things where we had to get like corporate permission for them to turn on email outside the company. And so we did, we did have that. And um, we, uh, what was I talking about? The, um, I'm going to say stuff like that never changes. I've been talking to people about no. who are working from home right now, but can't, aren't allowed to have their Perforce, like can't sync their Perforce to their local, to their home machine because nobody wants the build to get out. Like corporations yeah. are going to be draconian throughout history. Uh, yeah. And, and there's, you know, that's the difference between a team, like the teams I've built have usually been a lot of remote people. So usually we have that stuff like source control in the cloud and, you know, things like that. So we're used to that, but certainly there's a lot of teams that aren't used to that and they're dealing with VPNs or a lot of people I know are remote, promoting into their machine that's still sitting on their desk that no one's sitting at. Yeah. I, um, the problem there is somebody has got to go kick that and turn it on. If, if like I've never, VPN at some point it always breaks down for me. I'd rather just be able to sync it per four server, but we're getting we're get, we're jumping to now and we're skipping yeah, yeah, like sure, sure. fifteen years. Well, so. Let me let, let's catch up a little. Okay. Um, so I went. I did. I did go to you know Activision recruited me and I went there and I talked to them and I think there was something in my head that clicked and I thought it would be really exciting to work on a dev team versus being an external producer. And the Fox thing, like I said, I was a little disillusioned. Um, and so I ended up, I remember sitting in a hotel room at E3, like sitting on the bed, which now seems slightly inappropriate, with, um, what was his name? That's Howard most GDC meetings I have, honestly. Or yeah. As an indie, everything wraps right back around. Like I meet the humble team in a suite in a hotel. Like it's yeah. still like that. Like a small room with, you know, one bed, but that, that wasn't yeah, the point of the story anyway. Uh, I mean, I got out. Okay. Um, and they, yeah, they offered me to work on a game, which became, um, eventually became battle zone. And I will say that, you know, when I said before, there's two different kinds of producers, I had really been this other thing and they should have two different names because they really are different jobs. Well, yeah. so I wasn't, I wasn't very good at it. And, you know, I kind of, it took me a few months to realize that I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't very good at it because I went from managing a business relationship with another company to managing a team of people and, and, you know, in theory, telling people what to do to make a game. And I didn't know someone needed to tell me how to do it. Right. Cause I, I had spent years just yelling at people to make it more blue or to make Linda Hamilton look less like a whore. Um, you know, make Spider-Man more red. And, <laughs> you know, in, in spite of my attempts to, to, you know, or, or my lack of ability, the game actually ended up great. It was a fantastic team. Um, it's probably one of the, you know, one of the best games I've ever worked on. And um, uh, it had, uh, you know, I think also like 95 Metacritic. Oh, you said, did Metacritic exist? That's where we got lost. Yeah. When I say Metacritic, like it wasn't, a, there was no Metacritic back then, but you know, we kept track of the reviews. Sort of in the review book all so the before, before you went to work on a dev team, did you have any experience managing people at all? Um, no. Okay. No, I mean, other than, you know, a couple of APs or, you know, QA people. Well, yeah, um, that's still managing. Like, did they report to you and you told them what to do? Yeah. 
but I, I certainly wouldn't claim to have any management skills. I you know, I, I think I was someone that probably needed to take a management class, um, you know, because it really was not something that I'd ever, I mean, you know, again, like I was an 18 year old kid that just kind of got thrown into the pool and somehow I didn't drown and I just kind of kept swimming. Yeah. Um, well, and I think were... that's the story of my career. And I say to, you know, people out there that are watching this, I think there's probably, you know, three people watching this, but, um, uh, you know, like I don't, don't uh, let the fact that you don't know how to do something stop you from doing it because at the end, you'll probably know what you're doing. Maybe yeah. not at the beginning, but. Besides, like, you'll, you'll end up only doing things that have been done before. If all you do is wait yeah. for somebody to tell you how to do a thing. Yeah, exactly. That's not how you got where you are, clearly. So, yeah. so okay. So then now you're at Activision. How long were you at Activision? I think, uh, you know, that game, that was about a year and a half. Okay. And when I the got there. Were you there from the, the entire dev cycle was a year and a half? Yeah. So when I got there, they had a prototype running. Okay. And they called that development at Activision. And then at some point when you felt like you had the game, you, you had locked into what the game was, then you'd go into production. And production was probably about 10 months. And so production was when we built the actual content of the game. Wow. And, I strongly uh, believe with this philosophy, actually. That seems right to me. Yeah, it's it's a great way to do it. And of course, because it was an internal team, you know, it wasn't like they were rushing to finish the game, you know, to, to because they were going to run out of money or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was there. And what was interesting was when I got there, there were 11 dev teams. And so there was like the I-76 team. There was... Um, uh, there was an RTS team doing Dark Rain. There was a Civilization team. There were a bunch of you know smaller teams. There was some Zork team. And when I left, uh, that was when Activision decided they wanted to downsize, and they wanted uh, a lot of the dev teams to go external. And so, like the Battlezone team became Pandemic, and the and then actually and the Dark Rain team and the Heavy Gear team became Savage. And so they were actually encouraging those teams to spin out um, and continue to work for Activision as, as independents. And at the same time, I started talking to Crave, who were licensing Battlezone for N64. So now we're in the N64 era. And that was more of an external producer job. And I was kind of like, I don't really know, you know, this internal development. I'm not really very good at it. So I'm going to go back to what I know how to do. And uh, so I went to Crave and I was probably at Crave for, you know, three or four years um, as an executive producer where I managed most at some point at the, at, you know, towards the end, they split, they had two executive producers, but I managed most of the, the you know, development at, at Crave. So a lot of Dreamcast games, a lot of PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2. Um, trying to think what the other Game Boy um was there another? Wait, Sony, Nintendo. Oh, and, and the original Xbox. Yeah. We did a <laughs> wow. Cool. Wow. So again, it was a lot like Acclaim, like a lot of games were like pushing through stuff with, you know, multiple SKUs and, uh-huh. uh, you know, lots and lots of volume, a lot of stuff from Japan yeah. uh, and a lot of licensed stuff. And this is back to uh, you're mostly managing logistics, working with developers and IP holders, work making sure yeah. everything gets QA'd, passing cert. What was cert like back then? Um 
Yeah, let's see. So Sony was, you know, Sony was uh, Sony was the hardest, I think. And Nintendo, like, there was no TCR book. There would just be like a couple of memos, and then they would make stuff up. Right. So you'd get rejected, and they would say, "Well, you got rejected for this thing. We haven't released it yet, but it breaks on your game. So can you fix these things?" Mm. And you know, it was just it was like random and unexpected. Sony, at least, they would say, "Oh, you violated TCR fifty four point seven if the player removes all four controllers at the same time while sticking their tongue out." You know, one white pixel appeared on the top left of the screen. Yeah. And yeah, Sony so, remains. Uh, I mean, they they're not that bad. The big irritation with me for Sony is you have to have a static IP, which is very difficult if you're an independent developer. Like I basically yeah. had to get like a what do you call it? Like um, I forget what it's called. Like a virtual host to like. Yeah. yeah. Well, some what some people do is they, they you get a free Amazon like an AWS server and point everything through that. Yeah. There's tricks. Just tricks, yeah. It's weird the, the hoops you have to jump through for for Sony even, still. Even back then, like again, like PlayStation One, everything was you had to burn discs and mail them to Sony. And but I think even for the development forums, you did have to have a static IP back then. So they've had that for a long time. Wait, so so every time you went into CERT, like how long did it take to go through CERT back then? Like if you failed CERT, you'd have to mail them another physical disc? Yeah, I think it was like you'd wait in a queue and then the actual CERT itself would be like three days or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. The submission package, you'd build the submission package for, you know, take like three days to build the package because you had, you know, the manual and you had uh, the videotapes of the game. And so someone would build those ahead of time. And then you had to burn eight discs. Okay, when you said build the package, I meant like, wow, the compile times were that long back then, but you yeah. mean, no, somebody had to play the game and record yeah. the entire- I mean, uh, there was a big FedEx box that you'd, you'd the, start the filling. The physical with. package. There were the right. checklist. We'd go through the checklist. And um, the, uh, you had to burn eight discs. It took two hours each to burn the discs. It was they were CDs. Um, now later we got there was one company that made an approved because the the burner you were using was this six thousand dollar Sony burner that was only for PlayStation games. It was like this really high end CD burner, mm-hmm. and somebody got approved to make a five disc tower that could burn five at once, and it was like the greatest thing ever invented. We were so excited when this thing came out and actually it cost, I think it cost $10,000 for the tower. Yeah, and my, my brother and I bought a $20 thing that would let you put like copied DVDs into the right. one. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Sorry. Um, so, so we, we'd burn, you had to burn eight discs and you were required to verify three of them, which meant you had to put them back in one at a time and tell the burner to re to read it and verify it. It had like a verify mode. And then you mark those three discs with a V. And I will tell you that after the first game that I submitted, we just would randomly take three discs and write a V on them. Um, so, uh, but yeah, you had to you had to put all that into a FedEx and send it to Sony. And and then they would acknowledge, you know, the next day they'd acknowledge they got it. And then they you, you wait on a line and then eventually, you know, somebody would, play the game for like three days and and come back with all your cert problems. And I will say one time for Independence Day, I got on a plane from LA 
and I and I took a taxi to Sony and I hand delivered the package because um, it was we didn't want to lose the day because it was like too late for FedEx. Wow. So. Yeah, I've heard story like get it, throw it in your car and drive from Boston to New York kind of stories, but that's a new one for me. You did well. It was only an hour flight, so it was actually really easy to do. An hour flight to get from LA to Japan? No, no, to San Francisco. Oh, Sony San Francisco. Got it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So for 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 Sony, they the you know uh, America would would approve your game, and then it, and that was good. Now for Nintendo. Um, you would always send your your ROMs to NOA in Seattle. They would approve it, and then they would send the ROMs after they approved it. They'd send it to Japan to NCL, and they would basically start over the whole process. Mm-hmm. And so many times, Nintendo of America would approve your game, and Japan would come back and they would be like, "Oh, on NES variant 22, you know, if you hit reset five times, the game crashes, and you'd have to fix it." Yeah. I mean, there's still, yeah, uh, releasing in multiple regions is still kind of difficult because there's still Sony Europe and Sony America, and I'm I'm not out in Japan. I'm not out in, uh, I think the only thing way to play kind in Japan or in China is on the Xbox because they're the only one that's global. Like, you can launch and it's on everything. Okay. Whereas I don't have your skills for dealing with um, bullshit and bureaucracy. Like, I just couldn't. I looked at I was I looked at what it would take to come out in like Japan and China for on a the PS4 and on the um, Switch and I was just like I'm busy like I had to write off those regions just between like for one thing if you don't it this is a total aside but like if you don't have the ability to market in those countries it almost doesn't matter anyways you're just gonna get buried yeah. so well I think that's the answer to that is probably a local partner yeah. Yeah. find a find a team in japan that you know is good um and work with them yeah i gotta find the japanese mike argan okay so uh, mike argan fun it's what my, my wife will translate for you my wife is japanese and she translates professionally so oh nice all right we'll talk about that later um yeah. so now you're okay i think we're caught so now you're at crave is where we're uh yeah I was, I was at crave we did a bunch of stuff at crave we had a lot of fun uh, eventually, they ran out of money, and um, I was talking to a buddy of mine who, you know, was a guy that invented the power glove, and he just like I just had lunch with him. I had lunch with everybody, right? I was like, I'm looking for work. I had lunch with everybody, and he said, we're making this game for Fox, and we need a little help. Can you come and help us out? And it was Alien versus Predator, the RTS, which was really funny because I would, you know, when I was at Fox, we'd sit at lunch and say, oh, we should make an RTS out of, you know, AVP one day. And, you know, I went in and, and talked to them and they said, look, like, we're good with this game, but we need our next game. Like, what are we going to do next? And I said, look, you know, I've signed lots of deals with developers. So I'll just be the developer. It's the same thing. It'll be so easy. You know, how hard could it be to go and find people to give us money to make games? Um, so... You know, the punchline is it's actually really hard. Wait, so and, you went from this time you tried to be, I'm confused. You tried to spin up a new studio. So now you went from being a, a publishing producer to being an in-house executive producer on a game title on a property. And you were pitching that property around because well, you kind well, of like jumped to the other side of the fence. Yeah, these guys, they, they, the company was called Zono. They had been around for 10 years. Okay. 
And basically the two, you know, there was a creative guy and a technical guy and they didn't have a producer or a business guy. And so I said, I'll be your biz dev guy and I'll find the next project for you. And I spent a couple of months pitching. They had some great tech. They had some, you know, really interesting ideas. Um, it was a tough, it was a tough sell because they were a really small studio at a time when studios were getting bigger. Mm-hmm. And their game that they could show people was a real-time strategy game, which was really neat. But a lot of people were saying, hey, I wonder if RTS on a console like works. So why don't you ship that? And when it's a big hit, call us back and then we'd love to work with you. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, cool. But between ship that and it's a big hit, we're going to need like another project. So um, it was it was really, it was tough. And like I said, because they were a small studio at a time when people were looking for bigger studios. And, you know, we were 20 and people were looking for 40 and 50. Um, you know, this is like PlayStation 2 and things were kind of, they were ramping up and getting bigger. And, uh, you know, one day I ended up, you know, in a hotel room with a, a producer from Activision, Minnesota, which was their budget group. And they were like, hey, could you make an RTS yeah, you know, for like $150,000. And I was like, yeah, sure. Because I had, you know, my philosophy was to say yes to everything, even if it was impossible. Um, you can always figure it out later. And I went back and I told the team, hey, these guys want us to make an RTS. You know, we'll need like two months to do it. Can you guys pull that off? And they were like, no fucking way. <laughs> like, That's ridiculous. What are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, okay, like what will take a long time? They were like, well, building the units, building the missions, building the environments. And I was like, okay, yeah, those are a lot of things. And so I said like, okay, well, what if you only had three units per side, you know, like a ranged, a melee and like a healer. And they were like, oh yeah, actually that, that would kind of work. Yeah, we could totally do that. And I was like, okay, what if you, there was only one environment for the whole game and you just built different missions on that environment. And they were like, that really sounds stupid, but okay, sure. And, uh, you know, we, we made that game in two months. Um, it's called The Crusades. And uh, we recorded the audio in someone's garage. Um, you know, the knight, there's a knight who's basically, it's like a, in some ways, I think the audio is a, is a uh, Monty Python parody. And he, like one guy put a helmet on his head and recorded all the audio uh, through, a, through an aluminum helmet. And it's, you know, it's almost fun. <laughs> it was a game jam. Basically made um, a game jam for Sony. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, and it, I mean, like when you look at it, the art looks great, you know, for a game from, you know, 2002, um, you know, it looks, it looks fantastic. And then Activision came back and said, you know, can you make three more games? And so we did an Everest game, um, which was the same, it's all the, the same engine, right? We had this real-time strategy engine from AVP. So we made an Everest game where your real-time strategy is you're clicking to climb up the mountain. And um, somewhere in there, we made The Alamo, which was a really bad movie with um, Billy Bob Thornton. And so like with each game, we would add a couple of features. So in The Alamo, you had during the daytime, you would build your... your um, the fort. And then at night, the bad guys would come and you do your combat. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like Rampart where you had this like building, fighting, building, fighting cycle. And it was kind of, it was kind of neat actually. And then, uh, 
the last game that we did, the kind of the peace day resistance was uh, um, the Troy. The, there was a Brad Pitt movie, Troy. So, but, and by the way, none of these things were actually licensed from the movies. Um, so the Brad Pitt movie was Troy. So they said, can you make a Trojan War game that doesn't feature Brad Pitt? And it on the box, it's the game is called The Battle for Troy. And the battle four is in really small type. And then <laughs> gigantic. Oh, barely legal again. Beautiful. Totally, totally. And, um, but it was fun because, like I said, with each game, we were evolving. Like, we'd add a couple of features with each game. And how and so long was the first game was only two months? How long were all the others? I think, like, Troy, they gave us like 175. So it ended up being like three months. And I mean, this was, um, really like survival work for the studio. Yeah. And I used to joke, either we take this budget stuff or, you know, we sell crack. So, um, and we didn't know where to buy crack. So that wasn't going to happen. You know, a bunch of game geeks. Um, and, uh, but, you know, but it kept us afloat, you know, for, you know, two years or something. And, uh, you know, in the middle of that, like we started talking to Atari and, um, Atari offered us uh, a D and D, and they had they had the D and D license, and we we uh, had this amazing pitch for this turn based D and D game that was kind of a, a rip off of Advance Wars with with D and D characters, and it got greenlit like four times. They kept calling us and saying it got greenlit. And we're like, you told us it was greenlit last week, and it kept getting greenlit, and finally. The fifth time it didn't get greenlit and they were like oh we're not doing any more DD games so um but then that led to like the consolation prize was xbox and pc versions of uh, demon stone which was this great DD game actually uh developed by stormfront um and uh anyway so you know like i said that we did a lot of small stuff we did a lot of like kind of uh less you know sophisticated projects but it kept us alive and then you know after a few years we got bought by mumbo jumbo which was uh, a big casual game company um and so it was really interesting because we were doing these two-month projects and then casual games were small you know kind of the precursor to today's like small mobile games and so you know we, we had the right team that was kind of geared towards that kind of development yeah because now let's see are we in the late 90s at this point or We're in, uh, well, the, actually the mumbo jumbo acquisition was 2006. Oh, 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 you were there a while. Did yeah. So I think Ono was like six years total. Got um, it. and the funny thing is I came on as a consultant and about two years into it, I ended up owning the whole company. Uh, the other two, the other two founders, when, when, when we were in like tough financial times, they, were like, I don't want to take the financial risk. And they left mm -hmm. and I was single and didn't own anything. So I, I was like happy to borrow from the bank to make payroll um, because I didn't, I didn't care. Like I was like, what are they going to, you know, they have, there's nothing, I have no assets. Yeah. So whatever, cause I was still young. And uh, so, yeah. So by the end, like, I owned the whole company and. Um, oh, so this, you actually owned a company and then sold it to another company. Yeah. Ah. Fuck. Yeah, people cool. do that. Yeah, I know logically people do that, but that's awesome. Cool. So so we, you know, we became Mumbo Jumbo LA and we basically made console versions of Mumbo Jumbo um, casual games for about two years. 
And uh, we did some great games. We did, uh, you know, PlayStation versions of Luxor and Seven Wonders. And um, we I think we even did, we, we had a board of Bejeweled. And then when it, like the day it was finished, they decided not to make the deal with PopCap. And uh, so ended up not never shipping, which was really sad. It's um, always the worst. Uh, we had like three of those actually. It was crazy. Uh, it's so demotivating. The worst thing is like the then you go to start the next project and you can't like get passionate about it because you're like, oh, is this one going to happen or is this just going to be shipped to? It's something worse than working on something when you're not sure if it's ever going to see the light of day. It's just yeah. We and we had one game where the, one executive used to keep coming and telling us, "You have to get this done for Christmas. It's gonna. This is the game that's going to save the company." And uh, and then they canceled it after you know we did mm. three quarters of the project but you were you were on the other side of that originally you were the one that was canceling projects to keep the company afloat yeah. so you actually kind of understood it well i always said that when i went to zono and i and for the first time i had to send invoices for milestones and i had to sit and wait for the money to come and watch my bank account dwindle and i i finally understood everything i should have understood when i was a publishing producer and, and I, I will say that I called every single developer that I'd ever worked with and apologized. Um, and, you know, I called up teams that I had worked with years ago and I just say, hey, you know, I, I now understand why you were so desperate to get your milestones approved. And I feel awful. I think every publishing producer should have to run a small development team for a couple of years to see what it's like to have to manage your cash flow. Well, people don't realize that as a small developer doing work for hire, Every milestone that comes in is making last month's payroll. Yeah. And if you don't, you never, you have this fear that you're going to have to look your employees in the eye and tell them that you can't pay them that month or, and you can never let anyone know how close you get to that line because you get to that line every now and then and you borrow money. It's a scary business. And I would have guys come to me all the time and say, can you tell us like, Tell us what's happening. Tell us what happened to that deal you we were talking about, or what about this? They wanted full transparency, and I wanted to be a transparent, you know, CEO. But on the other hand, you know, there's just I'm. It's my job to worry about that. I don't want the whole team worried about if we're not going to close a deal or if we're not going to get paid a milestone. And I'd rather have people just worry about what they need to worry about. It's really hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I, now you've owned, Jesus, you've owned Big Boat Interactive for 10 years. We haven't even gotten to that yet. Is that the next step in this journey here? Yeah. I mean, so there was a, when when uh, Mumbo Jumbo folded, a bunch of the Mumbo Jumbo people went. And I, I basically talked to some buddies of mine that needed a game team. And so we became, like, we just moved over to another office and became their team. And that game never shipped. It was a, uh, it was a, a, a driving game using Unity 1.0. Uh, because the, their investors wanted a web game. Uh, so, you know, I'll kind of skip over that. But, you know, it was a lot of the same team. And when that ended, they ran out of money when the financial crisis hit. Uh, so when that ended, uh, three of us were like, hey, let's go start another thing. Like, you know, because it all ended one day. Like one day it was all gone. And we were like, what should we do? And we we were starting this other thing. And um, that was Big Boat. Right. So, you know, it was there was never an office. It was always just, you know, in my living room. And we spent a lot of time looking for work for hire. And we'd done some mobile. We'd done like 
some of the first iPhone games. So you found and, a big boat. Would that be 2009, right after the financial crisis? Crash? I think so, like 2008. Yeah, sometime around then. That was when, yeah, and that was when mobile. So this is where I'm in the industry now, and mobile is exploding, and it's all about Facebook games, mobile. Yeah, Facebook was. So we were trying to do Facebook games, and the irony is when we started Big Boat, I had had a friend of mine who was my best friend's boyfriend and he lived in my building and they had I'm trying to think they had gotten divorced but i went to him and said hey um you know we're going to leave and start this game company do you want to do you want to you want to get involved right we we were pitching him a game that we knew he wanted to make and he said i don't want to make that game i want to start a company with you guys so we spent six months negotiating to start this new company. And our focus was going to be Facebook and mobile social games before like social games existed. At that time, there was just Mafia Wars mm-hmm. and before Cityville and Farmville and all that stuff. And um, it was just, we had a, we had three pitches for games we were going to make. And we would have ended up being like, you know, the next Scopely or they're not the next, like 10 years before Scopely. And at the last minute, he pulled out. He was like, oh, I don't want to invest my money. Like, I changed my mind. And then we all went and got, you know, jobs, right? And it was like, okay, never mind. Um, finding the people you collaborate with is so hard. Like, it's the, finding the employees that you want to hire, getting creative, impressive people to work with you in general is always, like, the hardest part of anything. Yeah, and for that team, we had, you know, like, five guys that were amazing. Yeah. Right. It was like the best five guys from the mumbo jumbo team. And it was just this the investor guy kind of pulled out the last minute and kind of left us hanging. So the other two partners went and got jobs. And I just was like, I don't want to get a job. You know, I'm just sitting in my living room. Like, I'm just going to keep looking for work, you know. And so I ended up doing some contract work and I got some, I ended up with like five, you know, contractors working for me doing like mobile mobile prototypes and so wait when you said you got contract work you mean you got contract work helping doing what exactly well you know both development right like i had a toy company i was working with that would come to me every two months with a small project they wanted knocked out on mobile and this is now when unity has become uh viable at this point this is like unity 3.0 or something like that okay so i would hire contractors, um, mostly from this uh, uh, private game community that I'm a member of. And I had two or three guys that I worked with consistently. One was in Australia, one was in New Zealand. Um, And I just, yeah, I I kind of, I built the company around just this loose network of of contractors that I was using to make these uh, little projects. And and it was, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was working from home and I had I had a baby and um, it was kind of neat to be home all the time and not have to like go to work. Makes it harder to work though with the baby. Lot, I mean, a lot harder, but, um, you, know, I, I, you know, I made it work. Yeah. So, um, and in the middle of that, like I went to go work for a friend of mine who lived or his, his office was like a half a mile away from my house. And I was doing some production for him, like, you know, while I was doing my own stuff. And I did that for about a year. 
Um, you know, and it's, I, as you're saying this, you are the least risk averse person I know at this point. Like, I, because you've been pitching it like, well, I mean, I just risked it all because I was young and I had nothing. And now you're like, yeah, well, I mean, I had a baby. So working from home and not having a job seemed like the right thing to do. It's like, what the hell, man? How are you? <laughs> like, I, I had a little money in the bank, I guess. I mean, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like I consciously decided not to have a job. You know, I interviewed for a couple of jobs here and there. And yeah. it's just, I think I, I was in a funny spot, though, because I was an executive producer at Crave or a studio head at, at you know, Zono Mumbo Jumbo. And so it was hard for me, like, to take a vanilla producer job, maybe at half the salary, mm-hmm. even though I wasn't making double the salary. But it was hard for me to commit to not doing some of these other things that I was that I had my fingers in. Yeah. And some of the work I was doing was very lucrative in very short spurts, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's boomer it, bust. It all... I t- it's yeah. That's what contracting is. Like you get, you have one good contract and you panic. So you're like, Oh my God, I may never have something like that again. And if anytime, right. usually you have like four to choose from and then there's nothing for a year. It's really stressful. Yeah. And in the middle of all that, I did this expert witness job, uh, THQ and Jack Pacific were suing each other over wrestling games. And I'd worked on all the wrestling games at Acclaim. Oh my and, God, we should have done the entire podcast about this. So you yeah. were an expert witness in a trial? It, yeah, it was. Um, so THQ and Jack Pacific had a joint venture where Jack's had the license for wrestling and THQ made all the video games. Jack's made all the toys. And THQ decided to do a UFC game. And so Jax decided that that should have fallen under the joint venture. I had worked as a, the, the producer on the original UFC game, which was Dreamcast. And I'd been the producer to claim on all the WWF games. This is back when it was called WWF. And, uh, you know, my boss at uh, Skyworks, which was the thing after Mumbo Jumbo, was an expert witness. And he said, hey, can you help out with this expert witness thing? And they interviewed me and they said, yeah, actually, you're perfect for this. Um, and so I ended up being the, you know, the, the testifying expert in the trial. And, but the, the, the thing, the only reason why I brought that story up, um, was that they pay you an extraordinary amount of money for expert witness work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, it's a bribe, like $500 an hour basically. And, uh, and they pay for the, you know, the research. And, and so I spent months, you know, doing, um, research for that. Like, you know, I, I had, was preparing videos of the two games side by side and stuff like that. Um, it was a lot of fun. And I worked with some amazing lawyers who taught me a lot about, you know, testifying and um, they taught me how to prepare, which was, was kind of neat. And <laughs> You are a fascinating person. <laughs> like this was really fun. I got to get really involved with bureaucracy. There was this terrible controversy and they were paying me well. I was well, like, all right, I'm going gonna- <laughs> to. I mean, I wouldn't put it like that. I mean, you've got an interesting spin. The way I looked at it was I'm an argumentative person. Uh, And they were paying me to go into court and argue with people whose job it is to argue professionally. And it's like I thought about every, like, law, lawyer show I'd ever seen on TV. That's how I learned things. And so the way a trial works is that you get interviewed by your – lawyer right and it's all pre-prepared like i had a list of all the questions and all the answers uh-huh. so he would ask me i knew exactly what he was going to ask me so mm-hmm. that part is and then the other side 
cross-examination. And the point of cross-examination is that they are trying to make you into a non-credible witness. So they are trying to pick apart the things that you said. Oh, you said this, but isn't it true that that, you know? And so he was like, the, the sad thing is that this lawyer was not prepared. And so everything he said was wrong. And so like they would put up a screen with a bunch of the UFC games I worked on. And I don't know what their point was, but it was, it was like every UFC game that I didn't work on. And so they were like, are these the UFC games you worked on? And I'm like, no. And the, so the training is you're only supposed to say yes or no, right? You don't elaborate. If, if, if you say no and they want to know why they have to ask you, right? So you're, you're, you're trying to give them no information. So, you know, for 10 minutes, this goes back and forth where he's like, well, didn't you work on the UFC games? And I'm like, yes. Well, did you work on these games? No. And then they're like, okay, can you explain why you, you know, well, actually I worked on the Dreamcast game, which isn't on this list. And so this goes on for like an hour. And basically it's for me, it's like a game. I'm trying to give this guy no information. That's the job. And that's, you know, that's what a witness does. Um, and so everything, I mean, the guy would throw up sales numbers and go, is this a tryst, you know, sales data report? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what this is. You just put a you know, paper up on the screen. I don't know what it is. And it's, anyway, it just goes on and on. And there's, normally there's a third phase where the, where your side asks you questions again to clarify whatever it is that the other side thinks they found out about you. And um, they were like getting ready to do it. And then the guy said, now nah, you can just leave. He's like, actually, because you literally gave them nothing. There's nothing for us to recross. Um, so that was, it was really fun. All right. You won. You won it uh, won. trial law. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Well, we didn't win the case. Oh, you didn't. Yeah. That oh. was disappointing. the lawyer. It was, it was one of the biggest law firms in America. And the lawyer told me he'd never lost a case. So I was so excited. And at the end, what had happened was THQ had released another MMA game about five years before. And there's some legal concept, and I'm not a lawyer, but it was kind of like, why didn't you complain then? Why did you wait until now to complain about this game when you should have exerted that right five years ago? And that was the lawyer's decision, you know, the judge's decision. But it was great. In the middle of it, um, the judge asked me a question. This judge is allowed to do that. It's his courtroom. And the other side objected. And I guess you're not really supposed to do that. Objected the judge? Yeah. And the judge was like, but you can't do that. Like, what are you doing? And, of course, and then all the lawyers get into this whole thing where they pretend they're all outraged at each other. And and I was just sitting there, like, you know, trying not to laugh. Because oh, it's God. just a whole situation. What, where and, do you go from here? Now I want, like, what if we can get you to to testify in front of Congress. Like that's the only uh, no. next level. We got to. I'm not that smart. And I've done some other expert witness work and it's really, it's super fascinating. Um, there was, uh, um, there's this game called Heroes Charge with, there was, a, it's all very public, right? That there was this massive three-way lawsuit that Heroes Charge was a clone of a Chinese game, which was called Dota Legends, which was a clone of all the characters from Dota. Mm -hmm. And Blizzard was suing them both. And the Chinese company was suing the American company because they ripped off the Chinese game. And uh, so I was involved in that case also. Um, 
which again, I'm not sure which side. I think everybody lost in that one because it was just this crazy round robin thing. Um, but but yeah, like I said, it's it's super fun work, and I guess there's a part of me that like enjoyed taking all of my experience and like using it for something. Yeah. No, that's cool. Is that like, does are we caught up to present day? Is this where you are now? Um, I mean, Big Boat has had all kinds of crazy activities over the years. Like I said, I, I, I worked as a contract producer for a, com- a company in, uh, in LA called Spin Master. Mm-hmm. Um, you may know them. They make Tech Deck and um, uh, uh, Bakugan. The Bakugan were like this huge toy for years. And so they had this um, toy called Sick Bricks, which is a uh, like a little like Lego characters. And the idea was we made a game and you could point your phone at the character and it would visually like scan the character into the game. And then there were like, it was like Skylanders, right? There were like 50 different characters. And then we built this game where you had all the different characters. And uh, so I was like, you know, contract producer on that game. And it was a team in France who made this visually beautiful game. Um, it, it, It wasn't on time which was kind of a French stereotype. Apologize to anyone from France who's watching this, but it's true. And uh, so, you know, I would go do that for a year and then I would go back to, you know, while I was doing that, I was doing biz dev, trying to find the next project for Big Boat. In the middle of all that, I hooked up with a team in Estonia that I really liked working with, like a small indie team. And they were very agile. And so what I did was I stopped doing this like random contractor thing and focused <clears throat> all of my development <coughs> to this team that I basically made like a long-term partnership with. Uh-huh. Um, and so that made it a lot easier for me that I could go and find the work and I kind of manage big picture, but I didn't have to manage the day to day as much. And so, you know, that partnership yielded, you know, I don't know, 10 or 12 small projects. Um, and then uh, kind of the last big big boat, big, big boat thing was, you know, remember when I was at Activision, I worked on Battlezone. So 15 years later, Rebellion in the UK buys the rights to Battlezone from Atari when Atari is selling off all their IP. And they come to me, I'd worked with them on AVP. So I knew the, the Kingsleys who are the owners of Rebellion. And they said, look, we have this thing. There's this Activision game. It's never been on Steam. Can you help us get this game onto Steam? Like, what should we do with it? And I had the original art director, the original uh, one of the original gameplay programmers, uh, were people that I talked to all the time. And I called them up and said, "Hey, what you know? What do you what do you think?" We put together a pitch that was like, you know, level one, just stick it onto Steam. Level two, like stick it onto Steam and make it work. Or level three, like redo all the art and make it into like a great game. And they said, okay, just go to level three. Like, let's do it all. And so we spent about a year and a half. Um, and I, for that, I built a team that was like maybe eight total. Mostly contractors, probably. Yeah, it was like, you know, I was building the big boat team at that point, right? Yeah. But yeah, they were all all contractors, right? Because I don't, I don't have employees, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, so we had a, you know, a couple of great engineers and we ripped the old game apart, but we kept the same engine, right? So we just basically ripped out all the asset uh, pipeline and put in, you know, like 
like the old game, the tanks were like 100 polygons. And then we built 10,000 polygon tanks. And, you know, we redid the terrain and, um, you know, basically really just polished the heck out of this beloved classic game. And uh, to, to kind of appease or to satisfy the hardcore fans of the game, we kept all the gameplay, you know, identical. And they were very happy about that, right? But we had this game that now ran perfectly well on Windows 10 and had modern shader-based, you know, graphics. And um, we didn't have the benefit of something like Unity, so we had to write, you know, rewrite the renderer and and uh, you know, create all the shaders and all that. Um, and so that was kind of a success, and it was work that I really enjoyed doing. I mean, you know, if, if you if you followed the story when I worked on that game. In 1997, I'm very uh, quick to acknowledge that I didn't really know what the hell I was doing, and it was like a huge failure for me. It was like this big, you know, black spot on my career where I had taken this job and I didn't really, I wasn't really qualified. And so now, 17 years later, I'm doing this um, giant do-over, yeah, the mm-hmm. same game, and I'm now I'm like taking that game and and uh, kind of redoing it. And so it was kind of like this. I don't know. I mean, like I probably at the end of that, I should have just died because that was like, <laughs> um, I'm glad you didn't. Uh, oh, it's yeah. good that, you know, I, you got to redeem yourself for something that you regret. That's awesome. Yeah. So we did that. And then we did Battlezone 2, oh. which I think was a little less of a commercial success. I mean, Battlezone was always kind of a weird game and it wasn't a huge success in 1997. So, you know, here it was all these years later, not a big success. Uh, but it let me build this great team. I had this you know, great group of guys I was working with. And uh, yeah. What's... So that was, that was I don't know, now maybe like three, four years ago. Um, wow. Right now, today, uh, I am producing the remake of System Shock, which is, again, another like really old game. Yeah. Um, that's a, it's a different approach. We're rebuilding it from scratch in uh, Unreal 4. And uh, it, it looks amazing. The art team on that is super talented. I'm like, I wish I had that art team on Battlezone. How big uh, is the team that's remastering System Shock? Um, I think like all in, we're probably about 15 or 16. Huh. All right. Yeah. And it's it's similar to Battlezone in that, you know, we've got this defined starting point. We are taking some liberties. There's a few things here and there where we're like, you know, if you played System Shock, the old game, there would be like an email you'd get with a door code. And if you didn't physically like write it down on a piece of paper, you'd get to like later in the game and you didn't have it and you wouldn't be able to finish the game because you didn't write it down. And so, you know, we're like, Hmm, maybe we should add a system to like keep track of some of the important clues and things like that. Cause games were, games were hard back then. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely, well, you needed a reason to sell that manual. That's right, and the strategy guide. Exactly. It, uh, yeah. That was your DLC back then. You couldn't actually complete the game unless you went out and bought the strategy guide. That's true. I, like I still have, um, I still have some of those strategy guides. Like that was a big deal back then, and that because yeah, there was no internet. And yeah, there was no, I remember. You know, there was no website, so yeah. So uh, that's what keeps me busy. That's uh, you know my my day job, and I've got my fingers in a few other things. There's always a few. My fingers are always in a few things. So, um, yeah. 
Wow, this has been an extremely long podcast, so I will wrap it up soon. Uh, but I want to have you on again. You, I don't feel like we've scratched all the stories you have here. Uh, done a lot. I haven't even told all the like you know the crazy stories. Oh, well, that's good. We'll keep something for next time. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope everybody out there has been. Uh, thank you, thank you, everybody who's been out there listening. This has been Gwen Frey and Mike Arkin, and you've been in the dialogue box.